history repeats itself. That's one of the things that's wrong with history. Clarence Darrow Missing books have long bothered me. Name a person. Name practically anybody worth mentioning, and there's likely a lost work attributed to them. Homer, Shakespeare, Aristotle, Pythagoras, Plato, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Euclid, Pliny the Elder, Tertullian, Origen, Confucius, and far too many numerous Roman historians. I'm naming the sort of names whom you likely already know about, but sometimes we only know somebody existed at all because somebody else quoted from their missing book. The Egyptian Book of Toth, a legendary manuscript alluded to in Egyptian literature and believed to contain the secrets to comprehend the power of the gods and speech of animals, is completely missing. Barossus wrote an epic biography of Babylon, and it's scrubbed from history. Plato spoke fondly of Homer's missing comedy. Aristarchus wrote a book on heliocentrism, and that's nowhere to be found. Aristosthenes' history-altering publication on the measurement of Earth is strangely gone. Ironically, there are no missing books from St. Augustine. If you happen to read my paper on Augustine, you'll immediately know why. Books had a habit of going missing under Augustine's watch. Speaking of which, there's missing books from the Bible too. Has anyone read through the Gospel of Matthew and stopped to ponder where the following prophecy might be found? And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. The answer is, it can't be found. The writer of Matthew is quoting not just from one prophet, he's quoting from prophets, plural. The Gospel of Matthew was Nazarene literature. These are the followers of Messiah who obeyed Torah and were therefore hunted down by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh-huh, now we're finally getting somewhere. You figure there's probably dozens of epistles written by the Jerusalem group and the Twelve, which were buried for the purposes of our own health. It seems the far more likely scenario that there would be. Just look at Shaul's catalog. The church fathers sure did preserve those little gems. You think a guy like Yaakov pens one masterful epistle and then calls it a day? I think not. He and Kepha were probably prolific. Let me ask you something. How does a book with the title, The Book of the Wars of Yahuwah, go missing? Please read that title several times over and try not to drool. If your answer is, books like that don't go missing, then you are correct. They don't. They simply give too much away. Sometime in the middle of the 14th century, a monk with no name set off from Oxford, England for the Arctic Circle. A monk, mind you, who financed such an exposition, we are not told. He certainly wasn't the first to explore the area, which also tells us his financiers had an idea of what he should be looking for. During his travels, he wrote Inventio Fortunata, or the discovery of the Fortunate Islands, which he afterwards presented to King Edward III. The monk with no name was far too trusting for his slave masters. Every known copy would soon disappear. But not all is a complete loss. 
Inventio Fortunata was orally rehearsed to a certain Jacobus Noyin by another monk who had read an original copy for himself. Noyin then wrote a summary of No Name's account in his own 1364 book, Itinerarium. For several hundred years, the truth of the North Pole has finally been known. Edit. <laughs> Scratch that. Jacobus Noyin's book went mysteriously missing as well. Bummer. There really doesn't seem to be a happy ending to this story. But have hope. Before Noyin's book became toilet paper, a rather renowned 16th century cartographer, Gerardus Mercator, managed to get his hands on a highly coveted copy, which he used as the basis for his atlas published in 1569. The monk with no name finally got his book summarized, perhaps conservatively, when Mercator described the North Pole as follows. In the midst of the four countries is a whirlpool, into which there empty these four indrawing seas which divide the north, and the water rushes round and descends into the earth, just as if one were pouring it through a filter funnel. It is four degrees wide on every side of the pole, that is to say eight degrees altogether, except that right under the pole there lies a bare rock in the midst of the sea. Its circumference is almost 33 French miles, and it is all a magnetic stone. Sounds like a page-turner. Then again, if my understanding of official geography is accurate, then the monk with no name stuck his nose where it doesn't belong and probably ended up in a re-education camp. Speaking of maps, they simply don't make them like they used to. One little beauty, which you will undoubtedly want to check out, is the creation of a certain Urbano Monte. We are told it was hand-drawn in Milan, Italy, and completed in 1587, according to the official timeline. Consisting of 60 sheets and making up a total swath of 10 feet, Monte's map is the largest known early map of the world. Emphasis, as always, is my own. The details are indeed stunning. I recommend that you pause here and do a web search for the 1587 map of Urbano Monte. Look closer. Dragons, devils, a unicorn and a chimera litter northern Siberia. I spotted what may be a fiery serpent in the Arabian desert. There are giants in Chile, some sort of Viking rowboat rounding Argentina, a sea-dwelling creature which resembles the Sula Nuth from the book of Jasher, specifically Jasher chapter 80, verses 19 through 20. It appears to be stalking a merchant ship off the coast of Venezuela. A merman dignitary, representing his people, is offering some sort of gift, a seaweed wreath perhaps, to sailors off the coast of Brazil. Meanwhile, sea serpents and other creatures of the deep are everywhere. You may immediately notice a very large landmass which is now completely missing off the western coast of North America. We've seen maps like this before. You will tell me they couldn't possibly have known about the layout of North America in 1587 because Lewis and Clark wouldn't even set off on their journey for another two centuries and some change. And yet there it is, already sectioned off by color, perhaps kingdoms or territories. Notice Antarctica. Uh-huh. Monte not only divided it up into several continents, but envisioned it as tropical, teeming with life. Mermen and seahorses populate its coastal region. 
not just toe-tapping penguins. There are dragons and centaurs across its topography, and even a bird carrying an elephant. Yes, you heard that right. You will tell me that Antarctica wouldn't be discovered until 1820, thereby proving Montes Antarctica to be an imaginative embellishment. Do me a favor and repeat that last sentence over and over again. Take all the time you need. He even goes so far to show a Spanish fleet crawling near its coast. The man and the myth Columbus was a psyop. What makes Urbano Monte's map particularly interesting is that it was only recently rediscovered, emphasis again my own, and added in 2017 to the David Rumsey map collection at Stanford University. This tells me one of two things. Either Monte's map really was displaced before it could be destroyed, that is, accidentally unearthed by individuals who believe Monte to be a rather imaginative mapmaker and therefore innocent of any rational cognition, or they're just now rolling this out to reveal the truth of our own past in order that we might ultimately reject reality and let the evil of their own lies seep even further down into our subconscious and do its work. This is precisely how they lie to us. They do it all the time. We've already seen this happen with the world fairs at the turn of the last century. Official history is a fabrication. Something tells me this map is much older than we're told. For example, Jasher once again records the existence of Antarctica in its third chapter. It appears as though Enoch left the earth for heaven there. Hundreds of thousands of men witnessed the event. Something called snow fell after. Do you see snow on the map? I don't. What are you saying, Noel? That Urban Monte's map is pre-Diluvian, and the dinosaurs were really dragons, and the Nephilim were really centaurs, and mermen and the devils were really the watchers instructing humanity? I don't know. You tell me. If it walks like a Nephilim. And since we're on the subject of books, do me a favor and do a web search on the giant books of Prague Castle. There is absolutely nothing to see here. I'm sure this was just your average run-of-the-mill library until it veered down the dark path by naughty scribes, hoping to make book reading more laborious and backbreaking for everyone. You will undoubtedly find a picture attributed to a certain M. Peterka, circa 1940, which was apparently documented in the archives of Prague Castle. I stress apparently because the local librarian rejects any such notion of giant books having ever existed. The internet tells me Prague Castle has cataloged most of their books for your online enjoyment, and yet none of them involve giant-sized books or giant authors. How tall do you figure those books actually are? Three feet? The standard book size for a five to six foot tall person today is only nine inches. Books of this size would be appropriate for King Og of Bashan. What is written in those books? We are not told. Is it a human cookbook? Is it a human spellbook? Is it a giant family photo album? Again, we are not told. Our slave masters simply show us a picture of a devil, just a toy with us, before backing a Smithsonian truck up to the discovery, beep, 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 and hauling them off. So many missing books. Bible books, books written about biblical places, books written by giants, also biblical. The wars of Yahuwah are an inconvenient history indeed.
And then one day it finally occurred to me, the Vatican has never been raided. In the sort of imaginary world where nobody stands behind the curtain, it only makes sense that the Vatican would be relieved of a thing or two every now and then. I sat here and thought about that for a length of time. We are reminded time and again how the preserved His story of humanity is cataloged down there. Every so often, they emphasize that fact by releasing a new manuscript, like the Lost Book of King Og. The Vatican, however, has never been raided. Sure, Napoleon Bonaparte kidnapped Pope Pius VI, but he completely snubbed the vault. Why would anyone make off without the goods? That's like robbing a bank, but only to drive off with the manager wearing the key around his neck. We are told the Vatican was a sitting duck during the Second World War. Hitler wasn't interested. Mussolini wasn't interested. Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, the Emperor of Japan. Nobody was interested. Contrarily, from the very outset of America's invasion of Iraq, museums were raided and deprived of their knowledge. And yet, when it came to the war, nobody walked off with books bundled between their arms. Nobody. I finally stopped to ponder that fact. It kind of gives everything away, don't you think? The purpose of this episode is to deal with the shape of history. Because people keep pressing me to address the research of Anatoly Fominko. In our introduction, The Lost Wars of Yahuwah, I had begun by ruminating over the above-mentioned issue. So many missing books. I guess you can say I've been contemplating a great deal about lost history. But I'm not really phrasing it quite right. Because there is a conspiracy against the Most High, and his story has been purposely misplaced. Maybe even completely rewritten. We're talking total malpractice and a spoonful of something by a nanny government. Time is a construct, as proven by the solar calendar. We live in an artificial system, a matrix of the Kabbalah design, made by men, not Yahuwah. So really, this is about the shape of everything. History, morality, cosmology, our own eternal inheritance, and Anatoly Fominko. I think it's finally time that we take a closer look at him. The Matrix describes Fominko as a Soviet and Russian mathematician, professor at Moscow University, well known as a topologist and a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences. But for the intents and purposes of this paper, he's the guy who developed something called New Chronology. What is his New Chronology? I'm glad you asked. Fominko is of the opinion that official history is completely erroneous before the 14th century AD, with the centuries between AD 700 and 1300 being total falsifications. Whereas popular events of classical antiquity, which can be deemed as true, happened in the above Dark Ages. The pullaway here isn't so much that our historical timeline was changed in the Middle Ages. If we're being precise, then there were no Dark Ages. Ironically, we are inhabiting the darkest age of all. Another way to look at this, and Fominko has gone to great lengths using equations and mathematical means, is that history is the same story being told over and over and over and over and over and over again. In the foreword to Chronology, Alexander Zinoviev, who is described as a Russian social critic, summed up Fominko's life work as follows. 
The entire history of humanity up until the 17th century is a forgery of global proportions, a falsification as deliberate as it is universal. Among Flamenco's core argument is the probability, though I reckon he would deem it as a probable fact, that our knowledge of earlier cultures is based upon texts or copies of texts that date from after that era. This is primarily due to Benedictine monks. From that point forward, official chroniclers fixed the dates of important events in history, but in a way that created historical duplicates centuries apart. Flamenco prefers comparing historical accounts, which describe astronomical events, with the actual sky clock above our heads. The Gregorian calendar is a terrible way of keeping time, don't you think? A good example of this would be the Peloponnesian War. We are told it was fought in ancient Greece between Athens and Sparta sometime in the 5th century BC. Fomenko, however, took astronomical events such as an eclipse triad described by the ancient Greek Thucydides in History of the Peloponnesian War and demonstrated that the war between the two powerful city-states more likely occurred in AD 1039, 1046, and 1057. That's a 1,500-year gap in time, according to the official timeline, between the reported events and what Flamenco is concluding. If he's using the sky clock, then it's rather difficult to argue with Yahuwah's calendar. At first thought, it may appear as though history was haphazardly slapped together rather than plagiarized. But then consider the following genealogies. Now, I recognize the fact that this is a podcast. Every episode has so far dealt with a particular article of mine. This one actually combines two articles, The Lost Wars of Yahuwah and The Anatomy of Anatoly Fomenko. You will either have to turn to those articles or use your imagination. Before us is a chart. On the left-hand side of the chart are rulers of the Holy Roman Empire in the 10th to 13th century AD. On the right-hand side of the chart are rulers of the Kingdom of Judah in Scripture. In both cases, the generations span precisely 400 years. The provided graph is the work of Fomenko. Notice the similarities between the Holy Roman Empire during the 10th and 13th centuries leading up to the Avenon captivity and the Kingdom of Judah leading up to the Babylonian captivity. In both cases, their captivity lasts 70 years. Sure, I can direct your attention to political and religious upheavals which brought new timelines, complete with new memories, in times past. One such notable example would be the Bolshevik Revolution. Even Rome fractured into three solar calendars. Sun worship really screwed everything up. But it would be terribly difficult to argue this is the work of Benedictine monks haphazardly slapping forged documents together and accidentally creating characters in a story from mere ghosts. The timelines are so identical that we are pressed to conclude only their names have been changed. In a future episode, I intend to show how even the events surrounding their lives remain the same. It can be argued, and I suppose I agree, the chart reveals a willful, plagiarized act. We've looked at the House of Judah and compared it to Rome. Now let's peek in upon their neighbors and take notes. In the following chart, also provided by Fomenko, we can see the Kingdom of Israel on the left, from its beginning to end, when compared with the Holy Roman Empire, starting with Constantine the Great. Generation after generation of Israeli kings, starting with Jeroboam and ending with Hosea, match the exact timeline 
and reign of holy Roman emperors starting from Constantine the Great and ending with Romulus Augustulus. Fomenko's charts go on and on from there. We could compare the Habsburg kings of Germany with the Russian horde empire, or take a closer look at a line of French kings forged from Rome. But I think you get the point. The obvious question most will have is why? Why would they lie to us about the shape of his story? Simple, though perhaps not so simply done for the mortal mind. Our slave masters sought to change the times in order that we haven't a clue what day or hour we're living in. Also, this is Satan's kingdom, and he likes to write his own story. Stop and ponder for a second how completely disjointed from our spiritual reality something like this would make us. Entire religious schisms are provably jettisoned off into linear tangents simply based upon how certain biblical events are arranged upon the calendar. German historian Dietrich Hermann Hagewisch gave it away when he wrote in 1854 of historical chronology. He wrote, It is necessary to furnish a principle of order and to promote the orderly arrangements of social life. Our slave masters are creating order out of chaos, and in doing so, they are molding our perceived identity, our very own consciousness, into the image of the beast. But also, our slave masters are creating a counterfeit system whereas a king might be transformed into an entire history, or more specifically, that a bastardly pedigree may be validated for having never ruled in the first place. We're talking serpent seed and synagogue of Satan stuff. Wink wink. Perhaps Chinua Akabi, prominent Nigerian novelist, said it best. There is that great proverb that until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. If you can finally come to terms with the fact that we are indeed the hunted, then you should have little problem gazing back at the trail of the hunt and gasp. We've been led through a maze of their design. As long as we remain in the matrix, we do not know where we've been or where we're going. Before moving forward another inch, I need to remind my reader that I believe scripture is truth, but we also need to define what scripture is. At the risk of sounding overly repetitive, this point needs to be hammered out. I will refer you to the podcast episode entitled Pinocchio is Dead, in which I stress the reality of Yahuwah coming down upon the mountain at Sinai in full sight of the assembly in order to make his law known for all generations. That includes our own. Regardless, just about everyone in his story has hated his word, his law. The Bible attests to this fact. There are two truths which I fundamentally believe, and it is this. Yahuwah's Torah is light, and Yahusha, Son of the Most High, is Torah made flesh. He came to show us how to walk Torah out. He is the light in a dark world, and the darkness recognizes him not. Just look around. Stop justifying everything and calling it normal. This world is a very dark place indeed. The 119th Psalmist got it right when he wrote, Thy Torah is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He's speaking about the law, but also Yahusha. It will probably also do you well to listen to a recent podcast, episode 8, wherein I wrestle with and finally came to terms with the fact that everything Yahusha prophesied during his Olivet Discourse came to pass within that generation. And that means everything. Call me a preterist or any other name you want. I don't care. Either Yahusha was a prophet 
or a false prophet. You can't have it your way. The Bible isn't Burger King. I chose to take him at his word. He told his audience that all those things he spoke about would happen in that generation. He said there were people present who wouldn't taste death. The people of that generation saw him in the clouds with the armies of heaven. Do the Illuminati written history books speak of that? No, they do not. And I don't care. I choose that as my reality. Such conclusions then beckon the following thought. If Yahusha returned for his flock by 70 AD, as he promised he would, then where in the world are we in his story today? The answer, I believe, derives from scripture in something called the mud flood theory. Sometime after Yahusha returned to destroy Jerusalem in 66 through 70 AD, the official timeline, from our standing position, succumbed to a sort of train wreck that involves a seemingly impossible to answer algebraic word problem. I furthermore believe, or rather heavily speculate, that a thousand years have already passed rather than 2,000, probably something closer to 1,200 years. What this means is, we have entered the season of deception promised in Revelation 20. It may seem like radical thinking at first, but I don't see how this couldn't be any more obvious, given everything we know. This is unlike any other time in human history. We've been lied to about everything. Reality as we know it has been completely rewritten. Should the horizon seem despairing to you, then look up and hope in New Jerusalem. It is up to Yahusha to set all things straight and make all things new. I choose to believe in that. Because really, if it's reality we're after, then the only truth we have to cling to, in which I'm certain is a sure thing, is Yahuwah's law and the testimony of Yahusha. Revelation 14.12 The ultimate problem I have with Anatoly Fomenko, and which very few advocates care to point out, are his intellectual associations. Pick any name out of the Scrabble hat. Pick Nikola Tesla. I don't care. Recall a name and then ask yourself these questions. Are there any spooks swimming in his circle? And who, if anyone, is backing or promoting his research? I decided to turn to the Wikipedia, spook literature, and this is what I found. New Chronology has its own page. I went there first. Wiki describes Fomenko's life work as a pseudo-historical Russian conspiracy theory, which argues that events of antiquity generally attributed to the civilizations of the Roman Empire, ancient Greece, and ancient Egypt actually occurred during the Middle Ages, more than a thousand years later. Already, I like where this is going. The theory further purposes that world history prior to 1600 AD has been widely falsified to suit the interests of a number of different conspirators, including the Vatican, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Russian House of Romanov, all working to obscure the true history of the world centered around a global empire called the Russian Horde. The Wikipedia further tells us mainstream historians reject Fomenko, duh, because he is inconsistent with quote-unquote absolute and relative dating techniques. Oh, sigh. Understand, Fomenko is not the first to cry foul. While publishing a version of Pliny the Elder's Natural History in 1685, French scholar Jean Hardouin claimed that most Greek and Roman texts were forged by Benedictine monks and that most ancient historian documents were furthermore much younger than commonly believed. Isaac Newton spoke in similar terms. 
Everyone who questions the paradigm is promptly told to shut up. Don't alert the sheep to the matrix. You know the drill. My next stop was Wiki's main article for Anatoly Fomenko. The Wikipedia tells us almost immediately that Fomenko gathered his research from Freemason Nikolai Alexandre. Insert a Buzz Aldrin moon landing flag here. Either spooks are letting us in upon one of their own deceptions, an investment they never seem interested in outside of Russia, or they're attempting to throw us off their scent. I choose both. This is precisely what we've seen with Mormons John Smith and Brigham Young. The founders of the Latter-day Saints were noted Freemasons. Again, this leads us to conclude that everything about the sudden and seemingly urgent creation of Mormonism is a lie, bent on deceiving as many souls as is humanly possible. Or we're looking at one more mighty example of controlled opposition. What is controlled opposition, you ask? Defeat the truth by shoving it in our face and then making us look stupid for either believing it or, more frequently, for not accepting the blatant lie which it's packaged in. Nearly all governments in human history have employed this technique to trick and subdue, ultimately enslave the people they promised to govern and help. It was Vladimir Lenin who said, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it ourselves. The problem, however, is not with Americans' ability to recognize Soviet Russia's rewriting of history, but the fact that we're currently in the same, but far worse, predicament. At least a fair amount of Russians can contend with the fact that history has been rewritten, and not just for them. Just to be safe, I decided to look into French scholar Jean Hardouin. Uh-oh, he's a Jesuit. That's not good. And Newton, as you may already well be aware, was a Kabbalist. So what the hell is happening? Freemasons and Jesuits and occultists are either leading truthers towards a slippery slope or they're dropping us breadcrumbs, and in every case, getting blasted by their contemporaries for doing so. Apparently, Jesuits had French scholar Jean Hardouin recant from his position. Interesting. Even Newton's analysis of history, which placed the English further back in antiquity, was published posthumous. His critics thought him senile. Then again, his critics were probably all in the same circle playing the game of sexy hot potato. The hot potato being unutterable secrets. The sexy explains itself. Also, it's all a script. Spooks are gaslighting us. Even their critics are in on it. I am of the opinion that we are once again seeing notable examples of controlled opposition. Unravel the truth, but make it look messy. Sloppy detective work. Hardouin was a spook. Newton was a spook. Alexandre was a spook. And if we're being honest, Fomenko probably is too. With Fomenko, we shouldn't be surprised to find some truth mixed with lies. You will accuse me of being double-minded, speaking out of both ends of my mouth, and attempting to justify my way out of a rock in a hard place. But that is precisely where we find ourselves in history, between a rock and a hard place. Revelation 20. We are in the season of Satan's deception, when Yahuwah has handed mankind over to their own delusions, and we are lied to about everything. Even the King James Bible is controlled opposition. What? 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 You cry tightening the noose in your hands. You then pick up the phone to call your friends. Get the pitchfork. We've got ourselves another coon hunt. Don't believe me? 
King Jimmy was initiated into Freemasonry, into the Lodge of Schoon and Perth in 1601, at the age of 35, two years before becoming king. The King James Bible wouldn't be published for another 10 years, and this comes after King Jimmy had ordered structure within the ranks of Freemasonry. To this very day, the 1611 edition of the King James Bible remains the Freemason Bible, a literal furniture piece, and is the edition conveniently used in secret Masonic temple rituals. The reader of scripture cannot get out of this one. We have little choice but to pick through the scraps of truth among a heaping of lies. Revelation 20, the season of deception. Agent George Orwell said it best, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Uh-huh, a rock in a hard place. Let's take theory to application and look at some of Flamenco's beliefs. Flamenco claims Andronicos I Comnenos was the historical Jesus. Actually, the Christ is a composite figure of the prophet Elisha, Pope Gregory VII, Saint Basil of Caesarea, and somebody named Li Yuan Hao, also Bacchus, Euclides, and Dionysius. Another example is the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which Fomenko claims is actually Solomon's temple. Jerusalem, Rome, and Troy are furthermore the same location. And as you may have guessed, Jesus Christ was crucified in Constantinople. While it is true that Jesus is a creation of the Catholic Church, and he's spot on about the Bacchus, Euclides, and Dionysus composite of the mystery religions, Jesus is certainly not the historical prophet Yahusha Hamashiach. The first is a manipulated image of the beast system. The second is rarely discovered except by those seeking truth. You can begin to see how Flamenco is playing the part of Hypatia, a tool of both worlds. Logistical reality actually gets a lot more convoluted within Flamenco's anatomy, becoming something far more akin to a Lewis Carroll looking glass world. Do you remember when the unicorn told Alice to pass the cake around first and then cut it with a knife? This is like that. In his chronology, the events of the New Testament precede those of the Old Testament. From here, everything is flipped on its head. Ancient Egypt, Rome, and Greece are Renaissance constructs, whereas the real kingdom of pharaohs may have lasted into the 1700s. Interesting. Ancient Egypt butts Avatar memes with the mud flood and loses. Meanwhile, Flamenco's historical Alexander the Great was still instructed by Aristotle, but the young victor was a Russian czar in Moscow in the 1400s, not the son of a Macedonian king. And just so we're clear, Flamenco's chronology is several volumes. The inverted reality goes on and on and on and on, but I won't. We must do our best to untangle lies from the truth. You will recall that I started out contemplating the Vatican vault, an errant contrast to the shadowy overland we live in, sparsely furnished with a catalog of missing books. The subject has long hounded me. Missing books. Already, Benedictine monks are fingered as a responsible party for pinning the ancient text which we believe is sedimentary, set in stone, and something we fundamentally call history. But there is more to it than that. We are also pressed to consider that a thousand years has been added to history. For obvious reasons, mud flood reasons, I suspect the millennial deception is a more recent invention. I therefore propose 
that there is yet another explanation to the tangled yarn. Missing books. What if, and I stress what if, Origen was a contemporary of Thomas Aquinas? Just stop and ponder that for a moment. What I mean is, what if Origen wrote of Aquinas? That would be a problem to the expanded timeline. Pick any two names, Pope Gregory or Francis of Assisi, Mark Felix or Ambrose. What if Constantine was a contemporary of St. Augustine or Tertullian of Jerome? That would be a problem. Again, books aren't lost to the sands of time. They simply and suddenly go missing. History is one big psyop. The burning of the library at Alexandria is just a cover story.